is now, and that's what exactly what they're going after. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Discretionary viewer participation is advised for the following professional wrestling exhibition. Greetings from Allentown is Tate and from the live studio audience. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 74 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today we're taking a look at a somewhat unusual show, WCW Pro, which is not the unusual part, it is actually WCW Pro on WGN from March 9th, 1991. I'll get into the whole special nature of why it was called that and why it was set up for Chicago only as a sort of exclusive sort of deal that they would do on this show. And you're probably thinking, oh, haven't you already done a 1991 WCW show? Didn't you do one not that long ago? And as I was thinking about it, I think it was episode 53. So it has been 21 shows now. So enough time has passed. I think this is the third WCW show from 1991 alone that I have done in 74 shows, which I I don't know. I guess I just like that year and that promotion, even though it's completely terrible for the first, I don't know, nine months. I find it to be a very interesting time, especially looking at Ric Flair and his evolution, to coin a phrase, as you get up to his July 1st firing, because you divide it in half. You can divide the year in half just by his firing. The first half of the year is he's there as a champion, but kind of a a weird champion because he's doing some odd things. But I certainly will get into that later. First, let me get in my plugs. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown, Twitter at gfallentownpod. And you are probably listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed in association with Place to Be Nation. Go to placetobenation.com slash Amazon to support Place to Be Nation with your Amazon purchases. Nothing added to your to the cost of your items, like the Tim Hortons coffee that I secretly purchased today that I set up to arrive on Tuesday so that my wife won't see it, so that when she's away on a work trip later this month, I can have my precious Tim Hortons coffee instead of whatever it is that we're having right now. I don't even know what it is. And I also bought an air filter for the air purifier on in our bedroom because uh, apparently I'm a fancy boy. And that was a present that I got a while ago because apparently that air purifier stops me from snoring as bad. I don't know how that might work, but apparently it's not as loud when that when we got that thing and we turned it on. So if you figure, you put an air purifier in any room, what's the harm that it's going to do other than maybe using up a little electricity? I think it's a valued addition to anywhere, especially where you're going to be laying on a surface and breathing for seven or eight hours. I feel like it's a good idea. 
So, as for, you know, I just want to quickly run through my weekend because I'm going to tie this back to the show. Because last Friday night, I, I went to this place, and, and this actually has to do with wrestling as well. And of course, the, as I said, the show itself. I went with four my old, well, actually not all high school, because one of them I, I knew from college, to the Kowloon in Saugus, Massachusetts. Now, this is a place you may have heard of from Bruce Pritchard is doing a show there as part of his Grab All the Money Tour 2018. I'm not sure if I really want to go to that. I do like that it's at the Kowloon. It's this Chinese restaurant just north of Boston in Saugus, and it's kind of like what Casa Bonita is presented as in that South Park episode, which, by the way, I've actually been to Casa Bonita in Denver, Colorado, and don't waste your time because it's just a complete cluster F in that place, and the food is terrible. So I go there, I meet my friends there, and I had asked them ahead of time, I said, could you do me a favor? Could you listen to my last podcast and go to an hour and 12 minutes? And can you verify the story I told about my friend Merrill dumping on my other friend for not coming out during his 21st birthday because he had to get his appendix taken out? And only one person out of the four who were there actually went ahead and listened to it. And it was the one guy who... I don't think has ever watched a wrestling match in his life. Like he's never made any sort of reference to it. And he 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 couldn't even verify the best part is he's not even one of the guys who could verify the story because he wasn't even there. Two of the four guys were there, my friend dumping on him. So I I don't know. It it, it just bugged me. By the way, Kowloon better food than Casa Bonita, but Chinese food, I'm not too fussy. It doesn't have to be fancy or anything like that, but all, all the stuff gets to the table. I, I always I always recommend the ribs, um, like the bone-in ribs you get at that place. They, they bring them out, and they look like the thing that like they put on the side of Fred Flintstone's car in the closing credits where it like tips over. When you think about that scene, and I, I know I'm going on a tangent here, the waitress there is like this waif 105 pound woman and she's carrying a brontosaurus rib in her arms that is heavy enough to tip over a car completely takes me out of the flintstones except for the fact that it's the end of the episode and then i just forget it when the next one comes on on saturday night i hung out with my good pal keithy the voice of Greetings from Valentine. I'm going to be calling him Keithy from now on because when he does his impersonation of his mother, which is basically the same as an Estelle Costanza impersonation. Um, <laughs> besides, the name Keith, as pointed out in that family guy, it's not the greatest name in the world, so it can use a little improvement. And speaking of improvement, I, Keith's lack of appreciation for Yacht Rock did not go unnoticed by me. So when you hear this, Keithy, I want you to listen to some Ambrosia. I want you to listen to some Christopher Cross, Michael McDonald, and a sprinkling, a dusting of Boz Skaggs, a dusting of Skaggs, and just do that as your penance. Back to wrestling. I've been doing a lot of wrestling viewing this week outside of just watching this show and doing, well, I guess some of it was research for the show itself, but I, I did a lot of the cleanup of the continue watching 
menu on my WWE Network thing. I noticed I had a lot of world-class episodes where I had gotten through about the first 39 minutes out of 44 and just never finished. I usually would watch those right before listening to the WorldCast podcast here on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. But I decided to watch SummerSlam 96, and I am not sure I had ever seen that show before. Because if I did, it would have been something I would have rented at a blockbuster in 1998 when when there was one in my town. Of course, now there's only one left out in Bend, Oregon. And that is in uh, preparation for, at an undetermined date, an Adams Division podcast that I'll be doing with Steve Bennett talking about Summer Slams, the first 11 in the same spirit as the WrestleMania podcast where we discussed WrestleMania's 1 through 14. I thought I should watch 96 seeing as though if I had ever seen it, it had been 20 years. And that was my tweet the other day where I said I should not watch matches where Shawn Michaels is unprofessional first thing in the morning, which you know you can guess, oh, which Shawn Michaels match was it where he threw a tantrum in the ring? Can you imagine Shawn Michaels being in like a play on Broadway where somebody messes up and he does that whole act that he would do where he would throw a open tantrum in the ring, in that case on stage. That's why I just don't like the guy and I don't think I ever will. So just watching that and trying to figure out where SummerSlam 96 might rank. It's kind of an odd show because it's a very heel-dominated show except for the main event where the heel technically wins twice before he loses. It, just for the WWF, you know, it, it always comes off as weird when baby faces are losing as much as they are. And I also watched Wrestle War 91, which is the pay-per-view that WCW did immediately before the show would have aired. And there is a War Games on there that Everybody loves it. Seems everybody loves war games, especially you know on on pro wrestling. Everywhere you look, and I have a few issues with war games. The first thing is when they put up the rules for it. It's this huge wall of text on the screen explaining it. And I'm not saying this because it's wrestling or oh the audience isn't smart. I mean we're all capable of understanding certain things. But if you have to put that much text on the screen to explain your match, there's a certain inherent flaw in it. But also in this match that was taking me out of it was the time calls every sixty seconds letting us know four minutes, three minutes, and that's the first interval, and then you have the two minutes, one minute. I don't know if they were doing that for the benefit of the wrestlers so that they knew their time cues or whatnot, but it just it just bothered the hell out of me. It was taking me every time I would get into the match, especially the beginning part, when Flying Brian is in there, which, by the way, from a kayfabe perspective, having, having the guy with the wrapped shoulder go in there first may not have been a good idea. <laughs> I don't think that was proven out at the end of the day when he nearly died because the damn cage wasn't the cage roof was not quite high enough for a Sid powerbomb. And then you got the Arn Anderson isn't there because he was legitimately hurt. But it's always odd in that day and age where you'd see guys wrestle through injuries. I mean, Ric Flair has a wrapping over his hamstring or thigh or whatever. And he wrestles the whole match that way and does a pretty gory blade job. Instead, you got Larry Zabisco in there, who's actually one of the broadcasters on this program. So I'll 
get to Larry Z later, but he's substituting in for Arn Anderson, which uh, uh, something about that. I mean, Larry Z is perfectly fine and all, but him subbing for Arn Anderson as a member of the Horsemen is kind of like when Ryan Flaherty was playing third base in place of Manny Machado in the 2014 playoffs. It just it just doesn't feel right when Machado was. Uh, <laughs> Still an Oriole. I don't know if he is by the time this show drops. We we shall see. So WCW Pro, as the show itself, is actually the success. If you draw lines from the old shows in the 70s and earlier in the eight into the 80s, WCW Pro descends directly from Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, which I covered a couple of weeks ago, the episode from 1981. So you're saying... Well, WGN, why why do you need to do a separate thing for Chicago? And they did this on both this channel and on WPIX in New York, Channel 11, which you may know from Yankees broadcasts and also the mention on Seinfeld where... <laughs> <laughs> they they were talking about doing something for PBS and then like, well, we're already doing a lot of stuff for Channel 11. These were super stations that aired most in, in a lot of parts of the country. I never got WGN. And I think the reason for that is cable systems. I think there was a rule where you could only have two super stations on your cable provider at one time. So you couldn't have TBS, WGN, and WPIX all at the same time. You were limited to only two of those, and then there were other super stations thrown in. I know that WSBK 38 here in Boston was something of a super station because it would get piped up into Canada and some other parts of the United States, but not to the level of WGN, which had been around since pretty much the beginnings of television as we know it in the late 40s and early 50s and it's a when you think of television in chicago that's the station that i would think of first even though it is not an nbc abc fox or cbs affiliate the only network that it's ever been really affiliated with was the cw and before that the wb in the mid starting in the mid 90s and coming up but now it's more of an independent station that is heavily focused on local news so to get back to this you know and, and they showed chicago cubs games for a very long time and i believe they show something like 40 or 45 games per year now on free tv this was done where they would do local content for the Chicago market and for the New York market on WPIX to get around syndication exclusivity laws, or more accurately, the syndication exclusivity rights rule, which was passed by the FCC in 1988. Let me just give you a little background on what that is. On May 19, 1988, the FCC passed the Syndication Exclusivity Rights Rule, requiring cable providers to black out syndicated programs shown on any out-of-market stations if a television station obtains the exclusive local rights to air a particular program. When the law went into effect on January 1, 1990, WGN-TV launched a separate national feed supplied with alternate programming that no stations claimed exclusive rights to in any market. Along with sporting events, newscasts, and several shows airing on WGN-TV that were not 
also not subject to exclusivity claims. And it kind of goes goes into that. So this, because WCW Pro is shown in other markets, let's say, you know, whatever station in Atlanta, whatever station in Charlotte, all over the country. This is to get around that and have it air in various places. The immediate difference that you see on this show is a local focus on a show coming up at the end of April at the UIC Pavilion, which is where WCW would run their shows in Chicago because the WWF had the rights to the Rosemont Horizon building. And for whatever reason, Chicago Stadium seemed to be a real no-go for a lot of wrestling, it seems. Because when the WWF finally came to Chicago in 1985, it seemed like the Rosemont Horizon was the place that they really wanted to run. Also, we have a commentary on the goings-on in WCW by legendary Chicago broadcaster Jack Brickhouse, which I'll get into when we reach that part of the program. And of course, one change in WCW... I've talked about this in, it feels like every WCW show that I've ever done, where things are changing because there's been a change in who's booking the territory, and all all that sort of stuff. Well, Dusty Rhodes has come back after his near two-year stint with the World Wrestling Federation, a place where he went after a stopover in Florida for his own promotion for a handful of months, I want to say four or five months in early 1989, after being fired by the Turner people for (laughs) blading openly on TV with the spike angle, with the road warriors, amid other indiscretions, such as wanting to phase down Ric Flair to the point where you want to have Rick Steiner squash him for the world title at Starcade. This this has all kind of been gone over chapter and verse. So it's interesting that when he comes back, he's immediately installed as the booker again, and that they would actually... I mean, he, he was pretty much the guy they could get. They explored other avenues, including, I think, even Roddy Piper coming in and... I don't know if he was going to be an in-ring talent, but he had done some booking in Portland with Len Denton in 1989, apparently, that went over well, but I I, I don't know how realistic that whole thing was. So Dusty, he's got the book again, and there are certainly more downs than ups for this little run in 1991. One. There are certainly some successes, like Ron Simmons' singles push, at least getting that off the ground, and Johnny B. Bad, which is certainly the best character that Dusty Rhodes created in this little run. But what you mostly remember from this time is stuff like Oz and that ridiculous cockamamie entrance that had the cool guitar going for it, but other than that, didn't really have a whole lot... Diamond Stud is another thing that that character, you can draw a straight line from that to Razor Ramon. And I don't know if Dusty Rhodes would have come up with that or if Scott Hall came up with himself, but as the guy running things, he greenlit it. So that's that's one thing. But we don't see a lot of those at this point in March of 1991 where a lot of the focus is on a guy like Eligante, the seven foot seven giant from Argentina, who 
is kind of all over the show a little bit. And he's only come up, I think, once before on Greetings from Allentown, and that was way back in the prehistoric days of Episode 3, where I did not record 20-minute intros, where I did not loop TV theme songs underneath the little (laughs) intro part or anything like that. I don't even know how much I really got into talking about Eligante. I mean, I, I have some confessions about my fandom of 1991 WCW that I'm sure I'm going to go through as as we get that. And we see Elegante in the first segment of the show that actually is a tag before they play the WCW Pro theme song. So with that in mind, let's just dive right into the show. are pretty heady days for Janet Jackson, who that week in 1991 signed a $30 million contract with Virgin Records, making her the highest paid female music artist at the time. Certainly did better than anybody else who was on Good Times. I think she was doing a lot better than Jimmy Walker by the time the early 90s rolled around. They said it wouldn't last. For, for whatever reason, that stuck in my head. I was like, where have I heard that? by a Jackson family member and then I remembered oh yeah Michael at the 1994 MTV Video Music Awards and just think nobody thought this would last (laughs) the best part of that whole weird thing to kick off the Video Music Awards that year was Michael Jackson, what he was wearing, which no, no surprise that he was wearing something unusual. I mean, his jacket looked normal enough, but his pants, his pants looked like he was wearing catcher's shin guards, like he was a catcher in the on-deck circle, but there was two outs, so he left his shin guards on because if the guy made an out, he would have to go right behind the plate and warm up the pitcher for the next inning. It was really weird, and I know that on the list of bizarre Michael Jackson things that happened over the years that really, it probably doesn't even crack the top 135, I don't think, but speaking of couples that don't look right together, we start the show with Eligante and Missy Hyatt, who thankfully is not on commentary for this show, and God love you, Missy, I, I had a crush on you, like many people, as a child, but for God's sakes, you should not have been on commentary, no matter how much you might have been able to glean and learn from Jim Ross. She's on a date with Eligante out in Phoenix, Arizona, which is where Wrestle War was held. And I, <laughs> I don't know if Missy... Missy must have thought that Eligante referred to a certain part of his anatomy. I mean, who knows? I, I, I don't know why she's there with him. And she doesn't really seem to understand why she's there with him either. I just want to thank you for joining me here. I mean, this is one of my favorite little places in Phoenix to come. It's the hole in the wall. You know, the Donald has brought me here a few times, and it's really nice. There's not a lot of people around, and, you know, it's just for two people to come and and talk and and get an interview. I mean, the cameras are here, and I really want to get an interview with you and talk to you about some things that's coming up, you know, tonight. I mean, please talk to me. Not until you tonight. Uh Uh-uh. But please. Not until. Please, I mean, we brought you here. Would you like anything to drink? I mean, we, I'm sure they have some champagne here. Uh-uh, uh-uh. First, we got a date. And I want to dance. 
Yeah, but can't we have an interview first? Uh-uh. I want to dance. All right, we'll play something. I want to boogie. I want to really, really dance. Come on, put something really good. I know what they're trying to get at here, which is giving Elegante a little bit of personality around his language limitations, but maybe having Missy Hyatt there as the eye candy, which is what they're clearly going for, and having her talk over the whole segment to try to carry it may not have been the best way of pulling that off. If you're going to do it, at least have it be like a pure date or something and just have it be comedic, although I'm not sure if I trust 1991 WCW for comedy purposes. Go back to episode 53 in my profanity-laced tirade, which I don't have very many of on this show because I now pride myself on working clean, but... I, I'm not sure that the, from a comedic perspective they could have done it. Although, Elegante has the best part of all of this because he's clearly staring at her boobs because she's wearing a low-cut shirt. And I'm going to say, not to be a pig or anything, I, I can't really blame him for that. I mean, he, he's so damn tall. But he, he wants to dance for whatever reason because when, when you're seven foot seven and you have poor coordination, that... <laughs> that's what you want to be doing and because she can't get through to him she she wants to boogie but he puts on a more classical number so probably so that they could slow dance and he could look down her shirt a little bit more but then she turns into like a real sourpuss that you know you knew that he couldn't speak the language missy if we're talking kayfabe and you're a journalist and you want to talk to this guy you should have brought an interpreter Along, I'm sure that there is a Spanish speaker in Arizona who would have been more than willing to help the dame in the low-cut shirt. By the way, the Hole in the Wall actual restaurant that still exists is in the Point Hilton Squaw Peak Resort, which is in North Phoenix. And it's something that I think I'm going to keep in mind if I ever make my way out in that area. I was curious if I could find anything, Missy Hyatt's thoughts on elegante in general because she was such a big part of wcw in 1991 and i happened upon a review of one of her shoot interviews uh, that is done up at thesmartmarks.com and she has a lot of things to say some of which i knew from you know that she didn't like dark journey because i read an excerpt from that book when i did that uwf show back i think it was episode 21 so a very long time ago and she had some very candid things to say about various people and elegante was one of them says hated him he told her that she quote could make a lot of money in his country i suppose i'm not sure what he has in mind i don't know if it's sex trafficking or whatever it is This is actually really funny, some of the thoughts that Missy had, because apparently she was really crazy in this shoot interview, called Jake Roberts the MacGyver of crack, can make a crack pipe out of anything. Kevin Sullivan, devil-worshipping little troll, I think he molests children too, but don't have proof. Brian Pillman, liked him, thought he was sexy. If I thought he was going to die, I would have slept with him. And on and on and on, Ellie... Ole Anderson, pervert who's hard to work for. I mean, she really let loose on that. Certainly had no problems speaking her mind. So our hosts, as I mentioned earlier, we got Larry Zabisco and Tony Schiavone is our main 
play-by-play man. They run down what is going to be on this show, which I usually do in the intro, but I did not in this case because we have the nature boy Buddy Landell taking on beautiful Bobby Eaton. And in our feature bout for the WCW World Tag Team titles, the Steiner brothers taking on the Freebirds, who had just won the titles at Wrestle War 91, except the little problem of they were not the tag team champions when this was taped because this was taped before the wrestle war pay-per-view so larry when he gets to speak he announces that we got a new segment on wcw pro called larry z's legends where he talks to somebody from today's wcw which certainly was a mistake because knowing what we know now, I would have called it according to Larry. Well, you know, Tony, I've been considered a legend for 15 glorious years. And I've been sitting here doing this commentary with you week after week. And now I'm going to get in the ring and I'm going to pull in these future legends. And this is a place where they're going to be either made or they're going to fade. That's going to be coming up later on in the program. Did you forget that Larry Zabisco had a talk show segment? Because I know I sure as hell did. This has got to rank right up there with the Shawn Michaels Heartbreak Hotel or Victory Corner with Robert DeBoard. Although at least that, the guy was awkward. But I, you know what? I'll give it a look and I'll judge it when I see it. Promotional consideration paid for by the following... Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the pro wrestling only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. For our first match, we have the Young Pistols taking on Rip Rogers and Joe Kazana. Now, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of an audience member in Montgomery, Alabama on February 18th, which is where I believe this was taped, in front of 1,500 people, shortly before, about a week before, the Wrestle War pay-per-view, which was the first time that the Southern Boys appeared on television as the Young Pistols. Now you're thinking, well, how did this transformation take place? Did they do a series of vignettes where they happened to be in Wyoming and they became fascinated with that culture and they decided to do it that way? No, it didn't quite go down like that. Did they do a thing where they shoot pistols into the air around a flaming trash can with a boombox playing a la the transformation of the one-man gang into Akeem in 1988? No, they didn't really do it that way either. You see, what they decided was to just take these guys and make them a team from Wyoming. And the thought on this from Dusty Rhodes running things in creative is that the gimmick of the Southern Boys is just too regional. You know, carrying around Confederate flags, no matter how much it might appeal to the audience, which is mostly Southern, for World Championship Wrestling. 
The other thing is, they spent much of their time, when they came in in spring of 1990, as that babyface tag team, their natural opponent is the Freebirds, who also Confederate flag carrying. But, you know, by that point, they've kind of moved on a little bit to being just more of the glam rock star sort of thing, where it's Hayes and Jimmy Garvin. But hell, they could have done something such as loser have a loser can't carry around the Confederate flag anymore match. Something something like that. At least something to explain this wild transformation into Wyoming Cowboys. It, it, it seems like a very odd place for them to move to. Wyoming being the 50th state in terms of population. I believe there are less people who live in Wyoming than even Alaska. I mean, where it's freaking dark four months out of the year. And I say this as somebody who... I like I like Wyoming. I went there on my honeymoon, but I went to like Yellowstone National Park and Grand Teton National Park. It, I, you know, I didn't you know pack up and move there to live. As much as I had this weird dream in college in 2000, where I moved to Wyoming and I write for the local newspaper for years because I figured out that how the hell am I going to repay student loans making virtually no money in the middle of nowhere, completely isolated. Like I'm creating this new life away from everything that I've ever known, like I'm Don Draper. So I guess the Young Pistols deserve credit from a kayfabe perspective for doing all that and making it work. It's just very confusing, but it did let us know that Tracy Smothers, one half of the Young Pistols slash Southern Boys, was very good at cosplaying things that he most definitely was not. Because he was not a Wyoming cowboy, and I don't think he was a full-blooded Italian, but I'll tell you what, he had me fooled with those dance moves in ECW. So Dusty, I think, had what in theory seems like a good idea, which is this this gimmick is too regional, so we've got to make it more appealing on a national basis and make it more cowboy-based. But I, honestly, at the end of the day, it was completely unnecessary because... It's just a tag team in a wrestling promotion. It's not some sort of greater statement as to whether WCW is regional or national. And it's sure as hell not going to change anybody's perception based on one tag team in the promotion that isn't even your world tag team champions. It's kind of, at this point, just an underneath tag team, Tracy Smothers and Steve Armstrong. So they have a promo, and instead of explaining this... (laughs) change in whatever whatever they are they've just decided to let us know what their goals are going forward wcw the young pistols looking right at you you know something steve if we keep on with our success we've got to get a shot at those united states tag team titles or better yet the world tag titles. that's right that's what the young pistols are here that's what we're all about is in world championship wrestling is getting belts if it ain't the world we'll take the united states if you're really from Wyoming, you're probably only interested in, quote, belts, if you can put giant belt buckles on there. Seemed to be a thing that was <laughs> a big item for sale at the rodeos that I've went to in Jackson, Wyoming, and Cheyenne, Wyoming. Yes, I've been to two different rodeos, so I can never say that something was my first rodeo. And they start out, actually, Rick Rip Rogers is the guy starting out for the other side. He has a very interesting twitter account that's all i'll kind of say about it. he's a very 
old school, sometimes grumpy sort of guy. I, I don't necessarily agree with him all of the time, but he's somewhat insistent in making his points. However, what's never come up on his Twitter that I've ever seen is the weird hair that he has here where he has three sets of braids in the back. I, I don't... <laughs> I don't think that was in style even in 1991. He gets in a few shots at the beginning, and Tracy fights back with the usual babyface template, which is reversal of an Irish whip, drop kick, arm drag, and then a little bit of arm work with the 1980s style arm bar. They then the pistols do the rockers move, where the arm ringer going one way and then the other way, and then both of them chop the man down <laughs> i i always kind of like that move even though it, it kind of looks dumb if you really break it down but the presentation of it is always so good armstrong is in and rip misses on the sd jones memorial charge but then he, he does tag out to joe kazana who's a guy you saw in a lot of wcw programming around this point in time some ronnie garvin style palm shots in the corner palm shot I, I didn't even know how to really explain what that was it's kind of like the you know you're hitting the guy in the chest with an open palm and kazana is saying oh you like that like he's happy gilmore or something and then he himself misses an sd jones memorial charge but he's a he's a smart one because he stops himself before he goes into the corner and really sort of appreciates his own brilliance but then he gets backdrop slam arm drag and we, we get, we're back to that baby fest template that I was talking about. The pistols do a tag with the referee's back turned, but they really actually don't slap hands. So they're, they're doing that thing, which usually a heel thing, but when the baby faces do it, it's something I think that the crowd appreciates just, just to kind of, you know, show them that, you know, both sides are willing to cheat a little bit referee had his back turn rogers is backed in but he gets sunset flipped for two and then we get a blind tag by tracy to steve before an irish whip and rogers is held up sort of in the rougeau bomb position because steve goes up to the top rope but instead of that he hits a missile drop kick which i thought was kind of a cool finisher and the young pistols pick up the win here in their new Wyoming cowboy gimmick. There are different ways to make them cowboys instead of dressing them up in mustard and and brown, and because it's always kind of an odd color scheme. And I, I made fun of it, you know, a long time ago when Earthquake wore that brown singlet that one time. That it, it's very hard to pull off that color in a wrestling ring, especially when you have this abrupt change in personality and gimmick like what these guys had so right idea maybe to make it not so regional but i don't think it was really necessary this is dangerous dance fighting which there's no introduction needs to be made about me because all you people know what a dangerous man i am and that's why i'm here at world championship wrestling it's because i want some recognition and i want some respect and if I don't get respect, dangerous Dan Spivey, he goes out and he takes it. Dan Spivey sounds very unsure of himself at the beginning of that, which might be because his character, where it's just this plain, ordinary, dangerous Dan Spivey, which 
By the way, Dangerous Dan might not be something to go by. I know, you know, they prefer alliteration and all that, but since we just had two years of Dangerous Danny Davis on the other side of the world and he was a complete jobber, maybe don't call yourself Dangerous Dan or have anybody call themselves that for at least like a five to ten year waiting period so we can just kind of forget that and flush that out of our system. This ends up being a really weird promo where he just talks about Ron Simmons out of nowhere at the end. Spivey's coming off a loss to Lex Luger at WrestleWar in what was also not not a bad match by any stretch because Luger was on a pretty good run at that time. He never really had Spivey a good character until you get to Waylon Mercy. He was always just kind of a as a heel, at least, which is what he is here. The angry guy that you would see at the end of a bar that you maybe don't want to mess with, but that's really not much of a wrestling character. I mean, Cape Fear comes out later in 91, and that's where you base the Waylon Mercy character, but that movie came out originally in the 60s with Robert Mitchum as the Robert De Niro character from the later movie. Which made me think that you when you take characters from movies and you make them wrestling gimmicks that that can work so i think perhaps you should look to movies from the 60s and 70s at this point for movies that people may have forgotten and there's probably some gimmicks in there that you can mine from and people won't say oh that's a ripoff because they wouldn't necessarily know those things then there is an ad after the spivey promo for some wrestling videos and this is this is really weird attention to wrestling fans get your credit card ready to order the hottest wrestling videos we've ever offered first it's non-stop hit and body slamming action for the all-american champion of all hogan see Hulk team up with Andre the giant as never before then it's blow after blow from the viciously brutal sergeant slaughter each of these exclusive half-hour videos is jam-packed with the ultimate high flying bone crushing pro wrestling excitement at 14.95 each there are steals but now through this special tv offer you get a third video absolutely free that's right you get hawk and animal the road warriors the most devastating tag team champions of the decade plus hulk hogan and sergeant slaughter for the incredibly low price of just 20 990. This offer not available in stores. Remember, you get three exciting videos, 90 minutes of action, but you must call now. It's weird enough to hear Hulk Hogan's name come up in a commercial on WCW programming in 1991. Again, this is probably a local ad placed on WGN, which is how you would get around that sort of weirdness. But it's the fact that you have Sergeant Slaughter and the Road Warriors. All of these people are in the WWF. March of 1991. In fact, two-thirds of this, if you count the Road Warriors as a unit, is the WrestleMania 7 main event. And this footage is all AWA footage, because clearly they can't use anything from the WWF for Hogan or Slaughter. It's all taken from the AWA and at various times, because Hogan, it's pre-84, and Slaughter, it would be... 84 or 85 through 88 or whenever his last matches were. I know actually he was up there through 89 because I remember thinking he was going to win that battle royal for the AWA world title in February of 89, but it didn't quite turn out that way. Just really just kind of an odd thing. So they come back and Tony throws it to just kind of a quick review of the 
latest issues between Eligante, I told you he was going to be all over this show, and WCW World Heavyweight Champion and NWA World Heavyweight Champion Ric Flair. Yes, they're technically two separate things, but represented by the same belt, which would get split up when Flair would get fired. And these two guys would have matches on house shows. And it's something, there was a podcast a while back, uh, Mount Olympus podcast by Kelly Nelson, talking about holy grails in wrestling. And I think I've mentioned it on one of the podcasts before. Eligante versus Ric Flair allegedly had some sort of three-star match on a house show, which was to prove that Ric Flair could get a three-star match out of anybody. And this this is something I would like to see, and maybe maybe it is out there, and I don't know about it. But <laughs> I would like to see that. I'm not sure it would count necessarily as a holy grail. A holy grail of mine that I would love to see, but I don't think actually exists unless there's a handheld fan cam of it, is Randy Savage versus Bad News Brown from a very particular point in time from between the mega powers split in february of 89 and wrestlemania 5 because there were matches between the two that were previously scheduled they went ahead with it with the heel randy savage against heel bad news brown and apparently like the crowd dynamic of those were kind of interesting in that savage would play babyface and then he would instantly become a heel after the match but i've only ever read about them i've never actually seen any of the footage so that that's certainly one of them so elegante comes out and he's being interviewed yet another mistake of interviewing the guy who can't speak more than four words and the four words that he can say are i want the belt so this prompts rick flair to come running out and unfortunately this is during the rick flair has a terrible haircut phase because he screwed it all up just to fit it under the black scorpion mask. So he he's out here and he's gonna look about two feet upward and give Eligante what for. Hey! I told you if you want the belt, you deal with me, pal! Not him! Come on! And not the public! I'm Rick Flair! And don't forget on, Rick. Let's don't start anything right here. Stay out of this we part. got another match. We got a match in the I'm ring here. Seven times! Seven times the world champion, pal. Learn to love it. If you want the belt, you've got to deal with me. Those are words that Jim Hurd should have taken under advisement in July before he fired Flair. You know, just get the belt off of him in any way to avoid an embarrassing situation that would then ensue. I don't know. Maybe maybe this is some sort of warning shot. And they go to footage of Flair at ringside just kind of hassling Eligante, who is standing in the ring. And Sting, who Flair is still nominally feuding with after beating him for the world title back in January in the Meadowlands. He tosses Flair to the wolves, as it were. And Eligante just kind of scares Flair... <laughs> to coin a phrase and he just kind of rolls out of the ring and we go back to a studio promo from rick all right thing it goes like this you are the giant listen up i'm rick flair i'm your world champion and now you both have crossed that line you both want to be 
where I have been my entire career at the top. It makes no difference. Sting the giant lineup, boys. Take a look at it. Woo! It's the nature boy. Woo! Do you know who I am? I'm Ric Flair. I made my bones when you were going out with cheerleaders. This is certainly one of the weirder times in Ric Flair's career. Because you have, in early 91, the horsemen are there, they're in the war games, but it's not the cohesive unit that you remember from the 80s. Because Sid's off doing his own thing most of the time. He doesn't really even seem like part of the group. I mean, he's tagging with Dan Spivey some of the time, or at least he was at Starcade. Arn Anderson is hurt. You have Wyndham, and Wyndham and Arn are tagging together in early 91, but it, it just doesn't feel like the same sort of group. doesn't seem like all for one, one for all that it was then, where they were sort of like a gang, party all night, that sort of thing. An Elegante feud with Ric Flair always comes off as weird because you don't think of Rick as being the plucky underdog facing a big giant. As different and fresh as it is, Elegante, maybe maybe not that guy to, you know, <laughs> do that sort of thing. You have the Tatsumi Fujinami series between the first WCW New Japan Super Show and the first Super Brawl in May where Flair is sort of the de facto babyface representing America in this U.S. versus Japan thing, which it, it just kind of does some things to his character. Like, are we supposed to cheer for Fujinami? Like, it kind of confuses the issue. As much as I believe that Flair should have been pushed as a babyface far more often than he actually was in WCW. And then, of course, there's the issue of his hair being completely screwed up and just difficult to look at because he cuts it off to fit it under that mask and it never just quite grows back right but to defend Jim Hurd and he gets a lot of crap for just firing Flair instead of getting the title off him Flair should have been willing to do business and here's why is he needed to examine and look at himself in the mirror look at the man in the mirror Rick and look at what all this weird stuff that's happening to you in early 1991 and come to the realization of, I have to leave this place and I have to go somewhere else. I should go to the WWF or anywhere else, even if it's taking time off because this is not working right now. This is, this is not doing anything to further my career or legacy. Just drop the title to anybody if you sure okay you don't want to drop the title to Lex Luger that's fine drop it to somebody else anybody else and just get the hell out of there and get a fresh start somewhere else because it certainly was time for him to go and get out of this same cocoon that he had been for over a decade so Jim Hurd in many ways did Ric Flair a favor by doing what Rick himself wouldn't do. Mariah Carey's Someday was number one that week in 1991. 
and I, I was looking at what her birth date is, and it says 1969 or 70. It seems like there's some confusion. And when you have somebody with that, you, you, you tend to go with the older date because it's probably something to hide there. Anyway, so she's born March of 1960, actually it's April of 1969, so born around the same time of year, in the same year, as one Dustin Rhodes, who recently had a surgery and is going to be out for a while. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be career-ending. I would have to imagine he's going to come back at some point. So just just think about how Mariah Carey's number one, that point ninety-one. Dustin Rhodes is about four years into what would be a very fruitful wrestling career as this was his return to wcw this is not his first match by any means he made his return in mid-february after well a stint in the uswa he also worked in all japan under the name dusty Rhodes jr and then the wwf stint as kind of a dusty protege where he famously has the 10-minute challenge match against Ted DiBiase and then the Royal Rumble tag match with his dad against Virgil and Ted DiBiase, <laughs> which the the two Virgils there colliding is always kind of been funny to me. But he, of course, he was in Jim Crockett Promotions, or more accurately, WCW slash NWA at the end of 1988, tagging with Kendall Windham as the Texas Broncos, but rather forgettable. Most of his time back then was on house shows. You didn't really see a lot of him on TV. It's kind of a genius move by Dusty to get his son into the WWF as he's on the way out, just to get him TV exposure after he'd gotten a lot of in-ring work working in the USWA in 89 and 90. And when I see Dustin in 1991 WCW, the, f- the first thing that I think of is comparing it with today's modern product. And I'm not entirely sure why this is. It's certainly, I think, because Dusty Rhodes was the booker and we know this now. But if you take 1991 WCW and you put it into today's environment where fans know everything and know where creative is being driven from, the Dustin Rhodes push of 1991 would not have gone down so smooth. It would have been Roman Reigns-esque in a lot of different ways, such as Roman Reigns is not a bad professional wrestler per se, but people just reacted negatively to him for a variety of reasons. I mean, everybody points to the Suffer and Succotash promo, but <laughs> there, there was a lot else behind it too the booking of him was very poor and oh he's being shoved down our throats well if you want a shove down your throats i think that the reaction to dustin rhodes in 91 knowing that his father was doing the booking and not exactly doing the greatest job in the first half of 91 either that he might have been eaten alive before his career had a chance to really get going I don't necessarily agree with the notion that he was shoved down people's throats. I mean, he was winning pretty much all the time, but that was a way to sort of build him up. And the fact that he eventually became a successful professional wrestler for so many years kind of proved the decision out to be right. And it took, but it took him a while to get 
his feet under him. Because early on, his character, he's not really being himself. He's really, he's kind of like an actor who is really just trying to be another version of Dusty Rhodes. And that really comes out in his promos. And the one that I think of is he's teaming with the Young Pistols at the Great American Bash that summer. Just knowing that show the way I do, having ordered it on pay-per-view, just hilariously that I got that show of all shows where he's talking exactly like his father and kind of doing the exact same accent. And course months before that on this show he gets a little inset promo as the match is beginning and you can certainly hear that he's trying to be like his dad it's a natural dustin Rhodes, excited as ever being back in world championship wrestling now listen up all you people out there on tv land anybody that wants to step in the ring with the natural dustin Rhodes, you gotta be prepared because i'm here to take care of business and ain't nothing gonna get in my way All right, I can appreciate him trying to please his father since he's the guy who is running things here. But here's the thing, is you don't see a lot of cover bands make the American Top 40, so maybe it would be in your best interest to try and carve out a niche for yourself instead of talking and you know expressing yourself in the exact same way as your dad would have out there in TV land. I mean, that seems like a real kind of dated reference and dustin he starts out this match with a pair of drop kicks in a quote-unquote japanese arm track which i'm not entirely sure what makes it japanese i i need to find out more about the origin of that but i am pleased that he got at least a little bit away from the drop kick and regular arm drag that seems to be so commonplace and like a like it's like a template for these matches a couple clotheslines no no no, wait no 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 dustin is from texas so they're lariats excuse me i'll I'll be sure to make note of that but he's still very green as i say he's only about three or four years into his career and his opponent here who is a guy by the name of pat rose i don't have a whole lot of info on him or at least i didn't write anything down so i didn't find it too interesting puts his head down a cardinal mistake for what i presume is a ring veteran but Dustin, instead of getting a shot at... See, the Dustin Rhodes that we would come to know would go down to a knee and do that uppercut move that you saw a billion times as gold dust in the WWF. But here, he just kind of unsurely locks in a front face lock and then kind of gets in a weak shot or a forearm to the guy's back. It was really bizarre, but some it's something that you can see the improvement as time goes along get an inverted atomic drop and then a bulldog there's not a whole lot here for dustin Rhodes. just a kind of a quick quick squash match in order to showcase him going forward and larry no (laughs) there's a lot of joking at this point about how everybody fell over themselves in order to make dustin Rhodes look good particularly buddy landell in the match at wrestle war putting on a good show making the boss's son look good but larry even larry z as a broadcaster knows where his bread is buttered all right here reverse andre you don't see too many of those tony takes timing again don't let this man fool you just because his dad's dusty rose i can tell you right by looking at him he's got what it takes whoops forgot one thing
All right, that's more like it. Go to Tony Schiavone, who's talking about Bobby Eaton's recent issues with the York Foundation. For it seems that Alexandra York extended an offer to beautiful Bobby to join the York Foundation and become the third member, but only the second active member, as Michael Wall Street, Mike Rotundo, had taken off shortly after that whole gimmick was established, and he was replaced by the computerized man of the 1990s, Terrence Taylor. However, it seemed that Eaton wanted to pursue a singles career at this point and said, thanks, but no thanks, or maybe more accurately, he said it in a different way because Alexander York said that he was rather rude, which we know that Bobby Eaton maybe lacks the same manners as others, and we know this because when he becomes a blue blood in 1995, as covered several episodes ago, where Regal is trying to groom him, he has to do a lot of work. And Bobby Eaton, beautiful Bobby, he's not ready to go by Robert Eaton in 1991. That, that's going to take another four years before he's ready for something like that. And they show a clip of a match that Taylor was having with the Z-Man, Tom Zank. And Taylor got distracted by Eaton on the outside. So Bobby Eaton punked Terry Taylor, which ended up causing a loss via roll-up to the Z-Man, Tom Zank, which I have to admit is a very 1991 WCW sentence. Maybe as 91 WCW as it possibly gets, unless I could somehow shoehorn in a PN News reference. But that leads us into our next match, which is beautiful Bobby Eaton taking on the nature boy Buddy Landell, one of his last appearances in WCW in this run. I don't recall seeing him again after this point. As I said, he faced Dustin Rhodes at the recent Wrestle War pay-per-view. And there was a recent anniversary of a Buddy Landell promo from 1995 that he cut in during the Smoky Mountain Wrestling USWA feud where he was very honest about himself. It's a very good promo. You can check it out. It's on YouTube, and I know a couple of people posted it to Twitter as well. One of my favorite episodes of Exile on Bad Street that Chris Zellner did was one of the first 10 ones shortly after Buddy Landell passed away just over three years ago, which was about a two- or three-hour tribute to Landell's career. We just kind of went through all the ups and downs of his career, and, and there were many of them in part due to his own demons and drug use and all that. But it was so great because it was not like a tribute to... You know, you can you can do a tribute to Bobby Heenan as I did, or Roddy Piper. I mean, everybody knows those guys, but it was very educational to hear more about the career of Buddy Landell, and it was something that I could certainly learn things from. But he disappears shortly after this point because that's just the way it worked for as the man they called No Show Budrow at various points, and he would. Be a mainstay of Smoky Mountain Wrestling for much of great. And by the way, I have an announcement that I will be doing a Smoky Mountain Wrestling show for an episode very soon. I have identified one, and who oh boy, <laughs> oh boy, I, I I just cannot wait to get to certain parts of that show. 
Eaton, despite what I was talking about earlier with his issues with the York Foundation, he's, he's kind of a nominal baby face where he's not quite, you know, he's not shaking hands and kissing babies or anything like that. But he's not exactly, you know, mouthing off to old women in the front row or anything like that. One of the weird things about Bobby Eaton's match with Brad Armstrong at the Wrestle War pay-per-view was the very weird Bobby, Bobby chants that would come like right at the beginning of his music. It's dubbed over, obviously, on the network because he's still using the Midnight Express theme and he's still being billed from the dark side because he's still trying to sell his house there, which I believe he would very soon because he would be billed from Huntsville, Alabama by the time he gets to the clash match against Ric Flair. It's just kind of unlikely to have him as a babyface because he's not much of a talker, so you really have to kind of frame him in a certain way, I think, to get him over, make, make him like a silent assassin sort of thing the entire thing is sort of based on he's opposing the evil york foundation so as we get into this match landell controls early and actually chucks eaton out to the floor and drives his head into the ring post which i was like oh my god but then eaton fights back he hip tosses landell on the floor which is kind of funny because then it leads Tony Schiavone to try to explain the fact that Eaton so quickly no-sold getting his head rammed into a ring post. Beautiful Bobby with great sense of timing right there, catching Landell, and apparently the blow to the outside post did not phase him that much. Right after that, Landell tries to throw a punch, but he misses and ends up sort of clotheslining the ring post himself in his haste. And back inside, he... He turns his back on Eaton for whatever reason. It seems like Budrow is in a completely different universe, which he may well have been during this match. Who knows? He gets clotheslined, and that's a two-count. Tony then mentions the upcoming show on April 28th at the UIC Pavilion, because we're localizing it for Chicago. Here are the results for that show on that Sunday night in Chicago, which drew 2700 paid according to the history of WWE.com. Larry Zabisco defeated Big Van Vader via forfeit. I'm sure that there's a story behind that. Brad Armstrong pinned Johnny Stewart. Big Josh pinned Dutch Mantel. Now, there's another dusty gimmick that came along in early 91, the lumberjack Big Josh, who supposedly can't wrestle, but it's Matt Bourne, so of course he can wrestle. Dustin Rhodes pinned Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker. Bobby Eaton pinned Terrence Taylor after Dustin Rhodes interfered and hit a lariat on Taylor, and that's kind of the shoving down their throats because there's Dust- Dustin Rhodes was interfering in a lot of matches and looking very strong. WCW Tag Team Champions Rick and Scott Steiner defeated Stan Hansen and Mr. X, substituting for Sid Vicious. Mr. X was Kevin Nash. Boy, I would love to see that match. WCW U.S. Champion Lex Luger fought Nikita Koloff to a double countout, and Sting and Elegante defeated Ric Flair and Arn Anderson, who was substituting for Barry Windham in a steel cage match when Sting pinned Anderson. So that's a decent enough show, I guess. And Tony actually mentions the new Comiskey Park that is opening in Chicago, which is now Guaranteed Rate Field, which is a really bad name for a stadium. And, and that that stadium opening in 1991, a year ahead 
of Oriole Park at Camden Yards, which changed the game. And it was not, it, that's not my own personal bias. It's something that everybody sort of agrees upon. The White Sox were getting pretty good in the early 90s. That's not the reason why Dr. Dre and the rest of those West Coast gangster rappers started wearing the hats. They, they went to the black and white look with kind of the old script that said socks. The thing about the White Sox that people may have forgotten because it's been a long time now is they were the baseball team of Chicago even over the Cubs until about 1982. And it was at that point that Harry Carey jumped ship from the White Sox to the Cubs. And that's often credited for being a factor in the Cubs being predominant in Chicago. Also, the 84 Cubs team, I think, certainly had an effect on that as well. Even though the White Sox themselves won a division title in 1983 before falling to the eventual World Series champion, Baltimore Orioles. And hopefully that'll happen again soon but I don't think so. Back outside, Landell is choking Eaton on the floor. This is a very odd match. Sometimes it's coming off as like a blood feud sort of thing, but it's just sort of two guys trying to make an impression on TV. Whipped to the corner, but Landell puts his head down, a cardinal mistake for a ring veteran, and Eaton scores with a neck breaker, follows up with a slam. He heads up top for the Alabama Jam, which is... The way Eaton does that leg drop off the top rope is just so cool, but I can't help but think about the fact that it's a dangerous move to do for the guy doing it because, man, that, that is hell on the hips. Because think of where what happened to Hulk Hogan dropping the big leg for years and years and years and what that does to your hips if you do that enough times coming off the top rope only exacerbates it i don't even want to talk about hogan's the bizarre reinstatement after being suspended for three years due to racist remarks like just days after papa john's kills off their founder pretty much for the exact same thing i feel like they could have waited two or three weeks maybe and done it then eaten with a victory here but he has almost no time to celebrate before Terrence Taylor hits the ring and Landell is up and they're attacking Eaton two, two on one in the corner. So you're waiting. Okay, who's going to make the save? Well, here comes the Zed man, the late Tom Zank. He ends up making the save and Eaton, a little bit disoriented out there and Zank is checking on him in the center and Eaton just kind of decks him out of nowhere. I said Eaton is not a true baby face and he's they said oh he's a little disoriented that's why he hit the z-man wrong and I'll tell you why because you may not know this but Bobby Eaton we, we, we do know that he is one of the great tag workers of the 1980s but what you may not know is that all the great tag workers of the 80s they get together for drinks three or four times a year maybe go out and get some Chinese food and maybe they go to Hooters afterwards some, something like that and he got together, he sees Rick Martell all the time. So Ricky Martell said, look, if you ever find yourself in a situation where you can sucker punch that quitter, Tom Zank, go ahead and do it. So that's how you explain this angle here. Bobby Eaton seeking revenge for Rick Martell for what had happened in 1987 WWF. I mean, that that's as good an explanation as I can think of. 
other than maybe Bobby Eaton trying to, trying out a Stone Cold gimmick before five years before that would ever happen. You know, I recently had a visit with Alexandra York, this very charming and very brainy girl who is now the whiz with computers. She's the one who has developed Terry Taylor into a computerized wrestler. And let me tell you something, she's turned him around 180 degrees personality-wise in that ring from uh, what was more or less a kind of a toned-down young man to a kind of a villainous character, but a winner. That's the whole point. He's winning. He's knocking them off right and left. And Alexandra says, don't be surprised if someday, someday you see two computerized wrestlers wrestling for the world championship. That is legendary Chicago sportscaster Jack Brickhouse talking about Alexandra York, who apparently predicted the rise of esports. Although I don't think that's really what she was talking about. And by legendary, Jack Brickhouse is the man for all seasons for Chicago sports for a lot of years. He broadcasted Chicago Cubs games from 1948 to 1981. And it was then that he was actually replaced by Harry Carey when they brought him from across town after the White Sox let him go. But Brickhouse also broadcasted White Sox games from 1940 to 45 and then 1948 through 1967 when WGN lost the rights to White Sox games. He also called Bears games on radio, football, 1953 to 1977, and also did Chicago Bulls games from their inception in 1966 to 1973. So the only Chicago team that he did not cover at any point in time is the Chicago Blackhawks. So he covers a lot of ground and an absolute legend in Chicago sports also has like the big glasses but don't get him confused with Harry Carey the giant glasses are about all that they have in common other than you know both being sportscasters very different style Harry Carey would be more like calling baseball games like it was on the radio even when he was on TV or as Jack Brickhouse would do a lot of the let the pictures speak for themselves if he was calling a game on television that would be his general style if you're wondering where have I ever heard Jack Brickhouse before his most famous call is the famous Willie Mays over the shoulder basket catch from the 1954 World Series If anything, I think that catch is underrated because Mays covered so much ground getting to it because center field at the polo grounds was like 500 feet. So you see him approaching the wall and you think, oh, we well, couldn't have run that far. But that's something in today's, if you, if you had all the stats to break it down, I think it's something that would be appreciated even more in the current stat cast era. So Jack Brickhouse actually used to be an announcer on WCW Pro, but then they gave him this little segment where he would talk about a various, you know, going on in WCW, just pick like one topic. In the spirit of Grapeline by Don Cherry they have up in Canada where he hosts a two or three minute little blurb thing during during the winter which i guess in canada covers eight months out of the year so it's, it's really actually only october to the beginning of april or in the united states which presumably <laughs> where most of the listeners to this show are from i don't know if you recall on sports radio stations the old madden minute 
where John Madden would just kind of wax poetic about something for a minute or so while they would play an ad for, I don't know, Ace Hardware or one of those things. I just remember there was one where John Madden talked about how, you know, he loves football, but he wishes that football had more bunting. Like, he wondered why baseball is the only sport that has good bunting. And by that, he doesn't mean the guy holding up the bat and trying to, you know, move a runner up a base. He means the little red, white, and blue thing that you would hang from, like, the upper deck in a baseball stadium. He's like, football doesn't have good bunting. And I really wish more of those Madden minutes were on YouTube, although I feel like that's something that would be a real rabbit hole if I decided to start looking those up. Please be nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceMedation.com. We offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceMedation Wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the Place to Be podcast, along with Main Event Survey Says, The Monday Night Wars, and our monthly pay-per-view reaction show, as well as Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network podcasts and pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Weekend Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Match of the Week podcast in the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Through the Years, Worldcast, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Center Stage, and Letters from Kayfabe, plus much more. And on our very popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as Talkin' Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, NBA Team, PTBN Play, Sunday Groove, Breaking Balls, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertical podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversations, Geek and Sassy, and Marvel Age Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback today. All these shows plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaceMation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh ebooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads, Wing Bar, West Warwick, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, and the History of Wrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaceMation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. This show had advertisements on it, but I decided I wasn't going to make a big deal out of it. Although we do get an ad for the Cybergenics Phase 1 bodybuilding system that you could get at GNC. That would be a direct opponent of the Ico Pro that would be released by the WWF shortly thereafter. And then there is an ad for a Chicago Cubs-Milwaukee Brewers game coming up at 2 p.m. today, it says. And then I came to realize, oh wait, because this aired on March 9th, it is actually a spring training game, so good luck finding a score for a spring training game from 27 years ago. Also, Milwaukee was in the American League at that time, so they would not have faced each other in the regular season as interleague play did not exist. But both teams have spring training out in Arizona, so they would be opponents in the spring. And spring training games, by the way, one of the craziest things I've ever done was when I was in Aruba last March in 2017 i bet on a pirates orioles spring training game which is pretty dumb considering i didn't even look at the lineups and if i can just give one bit of advice to betting on baseball spring training it's don't but if you have to bet on the home team 
because odds are the road team is not going to bring their best guys, especially if they're traveling across the state. I know that teams that play on the Gulf Coast of Florida, like the Red Sox or the Orioles, are not going to send their best players via bus over Alligator Alley to go play the Mets in Fort Saint, Port St. Lucie. It's just not going to happen. So we lead in to a Barry Windham promo. And Barry, he's not to be outdone by Ric Flair in the Four Horsemen, who appear to be done from what I'm gathering, because it's, it's kind of an odd situation. But Barry, he doesn't want Ric Flair to have the worst hair in the Four Horsemen. Because, and I posted this on Twitter several days ago when I was just looking at the video. It's that Barry Windham walked into the barbershop at some point in early 91 and said, give me the Captain Kangaroo, please. Or for modern-day NFL fans, he said, give me the Mark Davis. Which Just Google Mark Davis, Raiders owner, and you'll see what I mean. And Wyndham uh, has some interesting things to say. World Championship Wrestling is about to take on a new look. I've been laying in the weeds, kind of sitting in the back seat for a little bit too long. Now, there's a few people around World Championship Wrestling that aren't going to like the things that I have in mind. I got a few ambitions, and there's a few people standing in my way. And I'm the kind of guy that doesn't take a backseat and like it. Laying in the weeds? That sounds like the actions of a stalker, if you ask me. <laughs> Maybe he's tired of sitting in the back seat if the horsemen are traveling together because he has to sit in back with Sid. Because you know Arn is probably the guy who's driving, because they're certainly not going to let Flair drive. I mean, no way. But Flair's the world champ, so he gets he gets automatic shotgun. He doesn't even have to call it. So Wyndham has to sit in the back with Sid, and while I love me some Sid, there's not a lot of great intellectual conversation there. We go into our match, Barry Wyndham taking on Terry Bronson, and I can't talk or think about Barry Wyndham without thinking about the Great American Bash main event that he was just sort of thrown into out of nowhere as the number two contender for the world title, which did not make a whole heck of a lot of sense considering the fact that Sting was more of a contender for the title. Nikita Koloff would have been more of a contender for the title. There was a lot of different ways you could have gone with it. In fact, he spent much of the spring either tagging with Arn Anderson, even though talked about going for the tag titles later in that promo, and even challenging Ric Flair. It, it was really strange because the horsemen didn't necessarily, you know, break up or anything. They just sort of faded away. Also, the Brian Pillman feud was going on, and they had some good matches, although it led directly to the Yellow Dog stuff with Pillman, which certainly could have been done a lot better. And my idea for that, instead of having Pillman lose at the Clash, you have Eligante eat a pin or get disqualified or something, and then you have Eligante come back in a mask, and the heels are all like, come on, it's obviously Eligante. And that, that bit always works. It worked, you know, I guess with Giant Machine, even though that, you know, didn't really last because of Andre's health, and you were just stuck with Super and Big Machine thing about Wyndham is he's still physically good and sound before the injuries and the laziness really took its toll with him, but he's not quite at his level that he'd established in 1988, where 
he kind of won that con- quote unquote consensus best worker in the world award for that year where you could rate him even above Ric Flair in part because you could see that the future was so bright for him but it was a future that never really came to be in the way that people were thinking he throws a drop kick early on in this match and when when really tall guys and I talked about this with Alex Wright and of course you know Okada in New Japan now when really tall guys throw drop kicks for some reason they're just a little bit more majestic than say a guy like Coco Beware who throws a pretty good drop kick but when a guy who's 5'8 5'9 does it for some reason it just doesn't it doesn't come across the same way as when a big dude who's 6'6 does it of course Dustin Rhodes threw one earlier and he's a tall drink of water as well this is a very casual squash match for Wyndham there's not a lot to speak of here and he sets him up for the superplex which is how he finishes and Barry Wyndham he doesn't need any of that Falcon's Arrow kind of crap. He doesn't need to do another suplex after he does the superplex. Instead, he just pins the man, goes about his business. Act now and get a year subscription to wrestling's most informative news monthly for just $24.95. That's more than 50% off the cover price. The wrestling wrap-up is not available in stores. I was very confused listening to that ad for the wrestling wrap-up magazine because it's one not available in stores but yet it somehow has a cover price where you can say that they're saving 50 percent off but this is the magazine that they would sell at wcw shows around the country so technically not available in stores you'd have to go to the live events but who was going to the live events in 1991 anyway get along do something in there whoa brother has an international object, as they say. He nailed Simmons with it. He's getting there. Hey, we go. We got pushed on him. Garvin don't even know what's going on. That clip was from the Doom versus the Freebirds title match at WrestleWar. And to be fair to Jimmy Garvin, it was not the first time nor the last time that he would be confused about what was going on with things like, why are we winning the tag team titles that we lost six days ago? Yet, yes, this is the infamous negative six-day title reign for the Freebirds, or how it got started, or how it ended, depending on your perspective on things. So you're saying to yourself, why? Why is the operative word of, why would you have to do it in this way? Well, sometimes television taping schedules could be limited, and you had to do something on a certain date in order to air it at a later date. But then I looked it up, thanks to the historyofwwe.com, and wouldn't you know that between Wrestle War itself and this show airing on March 9th, there were three different sets of television tapings that they could have done this title change at. There was one on February 26th at Center Stage in Atlanta. There was another one on February 27th, that was more of a worldwide taping. This is before the whole Disney MGM bit. And then on May 5th, there was a WCW Pro taping for shows more into April. So why couldn't they have done it then? I think the logic behind is, well, they had more important business to get to with the Freebirds, who had Diamond Dallas Page alongside them, but he was going to kind of step out of the picture to make way for one Big Daddy Dink, my nemesis, Oliver Humperdink, from... <laughs> God, 
Oh my, Oliver Humperdinck. The guy, wherever Dusty Rhodes would go, Oliver Humperdinck would soon follow as they knew each other from the Florida promotion, or at least so it seemed. And he's introduced as the new roadie for the Freebirds on the February 26th taping. So you're not going to have them lose the titles right after this new guy comes walking out. So instead, we're going to have them lose ahead of time. A, a short sell, if you will. Short sell is where, let's say, the Freebirds in this case, they would, let, let's value the tag team titles at $50, just to make it even. The Birds borrow the $50 belts and then sell it to the Steiner Brothers, let's say, for that $50. However, because they borrowed it from Doom, they have to get shares back and present it back to Doom to basically return the shares on loan. And in theory, they would want to do it at a lower price than what they had done the sale for so that they can make money on the deal. So they're going to buy tag team belts from somewhere else for, let's say, $45 and give that back to Doom and they get to keep the proceeds, the difference between the two, less any fees involved in the transaction. That's kind of maybe an oversimplification of how a short sell would work, but that is exactly what is happening here from a wrestling perspective. They are losing belts that they don't have. They are basically being borrowed from doom in the hopes that we will win them at the pay-per-view down the road. And by doing so, they are devaluing the belts by doing this sort of thing. So it would work from a short sell perspective. You would make money just from kayfabe. And my mind is a little bit blown. But if if I if you or I think this is bad, go to 1995 WCW, where just complicated financial transactions all over the place with Bunkhouse Buck and Harlem Heat and all that, where... Guys were losing titles that they didn't have, and nobody knew who the champ was at any given time, really. So the Steiner brothers are the logical number one contenders as the United States Tag Team Champions, which the United States Tag Team Championship was just so completely like unneeded because it felt like they were having a tournament for it once a year because those champions would end up winning the World Tag Team titles. You'd see it with the Midnight Express and 88 and here with the Steiners once they would win the titles and the crowd has to be very confused by all of this as the Freebirds come walking out with the belts but here's here's a list of things that happened during the Freebirds negative six-day title reign in around the world and in sports Grant Fuhrer returned to the National Hockey League after a drug suspension that had kept him out for all of the 90-91 season up to that point, and he shut out the New Jersey Devils 4 to nothing. University of North Carolina won their 1,500th lifetime college basketball game, becoming the first program to do so. And there was a military coup in Thailand. I don't know much more about that. I talked about Philippines last week, so I'm going to cut it off there. The Steiners are certainly at the peak of their powers in early 1991. In fact, Scott had the shot at Ric Flair at the Clash of the Champions at the end of January. And this is before 
the injury would set in for Scott where he would tear his bicep later on and they would end up vacating these titles down the road. They have a match at Super Brawl against the team of Sting and Lex Luger, which is just a dynamite all-babyface match that ended with some Nikita Koloff chicanery. And we'll see Sting and Lex Luger later on here in the program. But before we begin, we get to hear from the manager, still the manager of the fabulous Freebirds, Mr. DDP. Oh, baby, that's right. It didn't take long for Diamond Dallas Page, the chairman of the board of the Diamond Exchange, to put the gold straps, baby, around the fabulous Freebirds. That's right. Jimmy Jam, Michael Pierce, the B-A-Double-D. Bad is back in Bad Street. I would like to travel back in time and just meet a fan of WCW in 1991 and tell them, this guy there, the guy who's managing the Freebirds, DDP, Diamond Dallas Page, he's going to become an all-time top 10 star in WCW history, just covering 89 to the end in 2001. <laughs> that guy. By the way, that promo was also the longest period of time he spoke while affiliated with the Freebirds without saying, good God. He'd say that all the time on his way to the ring, cutting the Teddy Long-style promo into the camera. Took a peek and saw that Michael Hayes is only 31 years old in early 1991. He's certainly one of those guys where you, you can't really figure out what age he is for a lengthy period of time. DDP is actually three years older than him and then becomes this huge star at the end of the 90s, which is just really sort of unbelievable when you think about it. And Scott uh, overpowers, reverses an Irish whip and then jumps up for a corner mount with some punches. And uh, 91 Scott Steiner was basically Jesus to me. And the Frankensteiner, of course, one of those moves that is put over in the magazines as being unbelievably cool, despite the fact that it was so complex, it was completely reliant on the other guy to do the move correctly. But that didn't stop me from doing it 150,000 times in my wrestling figure universe when Steiner would win every single match doing that. Hayes does the exact same thing to Steiner with the whip to the corner, but then he gets in corner mount punches but then there's an inverted atomic drop and scott lays out both of the Freebirds with clotheslines and they take a powder for a little bit but then he's cheap shotted scott is by hayes from the apron and then he is tossed over the top rope with the referee not looking so there's our excuse or i guess cover for well the Freebirds could say they should have been disqualified but I hate that stupid rule with the over the top. I know that the theory is, well, it gives you another finish to do when you're when you're booking the match. The problem with that whole concept is it was completely burned out by even the mid 80s. So if you're still doing over the top rope finishes in the early 90s, you're just antagonizing the crowd, I think. And Hayes sends Scott into the railing as he's outside and Garvin is kind of playing king of the mountain like it's 1981 WWF or something. That was a very popular thing in WWF. If you look at MSG house shows, it was fairly common. A hot shot body slam clotheslines Scott on the top rope, and Hayes is in. He goes for the DDT, but Scott ends up powering out of it. You do a double team where Hayes comes off the top with a forearm as Garvin is holding him, but that is a two count. And then a sleeper 
by Hayes, who then turns and tags out to Garvin for some reason as he has the sleeper hold locked in. That's <laughs> you usually don't see a guy lock in a submission hold like that and also tag out at the same time. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. And Garvin gets whipped to the corner. Inverted atomic drop is how it is countered by Scott Steiner. And by the way, you're not hearing Rick Steiner's name in part because, yeah, he hasn't been in the match yet. Scott does tag Rick, but it is disallowed because Michael Hayes had gone down the apron to the opposite corner and wasn't holding on to, let's say, an imaginary tag rope because there wasn't one there. And the referee orders him back to his own corner. Even though he's not doing anything illegal, the referee should focus, I think, from a kayfabe perspective on what he's doing and just ignore Hayes because even if Hayes makes a tag... It's going to be disallowed because he's not in the correct corner. So, I don't know. It's it's just a device, Pete, I know. But it's something that really kind of bothers me. And once ins- Rick does get inside as things break down, and Rick clotheslines Garvin into Hayes, who is on the top rope in his own corner again. Hayes is crotched, and Garvin gets Frankensteinered by Scott, and that is how they pick up the win. Without Rick ever tagging into the match and that clothesline is pretty much the extent of his involvement the steiners win the world tag team titles for a second time the last time that they had actually held them was up to the capital combat 90 pay-per-view a year earlier and they had the u.s title reign here early in 91 but they would drop those titles they would have the tournament And in fact, they would never lose these titles because Scott's aforementioned bicep injury would cause them to forfeit them. And Rick would then team with the immortal Bill Kazmaier in a tag team title tournament where they would lose in the finals to WCW Pro Color Man, Larry Zbysko and Arn Anderson, the Enforcers. They actually go right into the Larry's Legends segment with the Steiner brothers in the ring after winning the tag titles. And you're not going to believe this, but Larry has kind of a hard time corralling Scott Steiner and Rick Steiner in terms of doing a promo, kind of having to remind them, stop talking about Doom because they're going to break up in six days at Wrestle War. Focus on your other challenges. Or he's trying to get him to focus on the fact that Diamond Dallas Page was not at ringside for this title defense. Now, what do you think would have happened if Diamond Dallas Page was at the ring? Forget Doom. Larry, Zabisco, it probably wouldn't have lasted that long. Yeah, what do you mean it wouldn't have lasted? It probably wouldn't have lasted. You know, Doom, those guys think... Forget Doom. Look at it. It was a, a good win against the Freebirds, but like I said, Diamond Dallas Page was not here. It's one thing to win the champion... How do I know where he was, Steiner? It's one thing to win the championship, but it's another thing to hold on to it. You know, the dreams of youth guys are the regrets of tomorrow. The more you know, Larry Zbysko, everybody. Go right into our next match, which is Sid Vicious taking on Scotty Allen. We get the full intro for Sid, complete with hometown. At 321 pounds from anywhere, he darn well pleases Big Sid Fisher. This 
make you wonder why, if he's from anywhere he darn well pleases, why Sid Vicious would choose West Memphis, Arkansas, instead of, I don't know, Marquesas or Aruba. I mean, we know that Sid is very comfortable walking on a beach from those 1993 Beach Blast promos with the exploding boat and all that. Even if he does wear sandals for some that that's the best part of that like all the absurd things from that little video sid wearing flip-flops on the beach kind of makes me laugh like he really sid you, you can't walk in bare feet is it, is it too hot there for you maybe sid likes west memphis because he's pals with some other notable residents like bb king junior walker both kind of blues musicians or perhaps even Michael Cage, a former NBA rebounding leader from back in the 80s who starred with the Los Angeles Clippers and other teams. Who, who knows, really? And Larry says that Sid is a physical marvel, and there's no doubt about that. He has among the best looks in the history of professional wrestling, and that he means business, even if Sid wasn't always willing to do business as it turned out with his contract expiring in a WWF stint ahead of him refusing to do the stretcher job in a stretcher match against <laughs> against Eligante at Super Brawl coming in May and I have to say I can't blame him for looking out for his own interests and protecting himself and maybe that's just me excusing unprofessional behavior on the part of Sid I mean yeah if it was Shawn Michaels I would be giving him hell but this is Sid and I just kind of write off everything that Sid does is uh, Sid 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 Sid's gonna be Sid he hits a power bomb here real quick and there's a dude in the third row opposite hard camera who's just cutting like this wide big smile and i'm thinking that would be me if i was in the audience for this taping and of course he picks up the win and i make no apologies for my love of sid i I read some i forget what the blog was i think it was plugged on scott keith's website they did a review of the 1989 great american bash and of course that's one of the best pay-per-views by any promotion ever and it was talking about the reactions that Sid was getting both during the battle royal at the beginning and during his match. And the person said, well, thanks. Now that you reacted so positively to Sid, now we're stuck with him for X number of years going forward. It's like, so what? Sid's awesome. Do, do, can he do a lot in the ring? No. But n- not everybody has to be the same. I've made this point 100,000 times. And when it comes to big monsters... I, I love the fact that Sid's a little goofy. That's part of his charm. And also part of the Sid package during this time frame. I'm, I'm laughing already. I, I'm, I'm sorry. But it's the whole stretcher thing where he would get the enhancement talent on a stretcher. Or in this case, a couple of medics in scrubs come running out to roll the guy onto a stretcher. And they're in a real hurry to do it. It's not like they're taking great care to put a guy on a stretcher. Usually you'd see like, oh, we got to keep the neck a certain way and all that. Well, Sid comes running out and just kind of throws the guy off. We don't get the full run run him into the ring post or anything like that because here is Brian Pillman out in a sling as he's still nursing the arm injury that he carried into the WrestleWar pay-per-view and the War Games match where Sid nearly killed him with the first powerbomb that <laughs> Pillman pretty much landed on his head. And I gotta admit, 
I'm a little disappointed in the crowd at this taping because they're not reacting to Pillman's baby face fire and looking to get revenge on Sid. And they just kind of brawl a little bit on the outside, and Pillman rolls in the ring and challenges Sid, who just kind of walks off. But shame on the audience here. I point the finger at you. It's it's Sid and Brian Pillman in 1991. If you can't if you can't appreciate the good stuff that WCW 91 is giving you, then what are you going to appreciate, you damn ingrates? And here come those attendants again. Your favorite guys. Yeah. What do you call them? I call them geek doctors. I've said it so many times. I'm sick of it. And they're going to roll him out. There's no question that Scotty Allen needs attention here, but he doesn't need this type of attention. Look at Sid Vicious. He's like a vulture circling the road. And they just leave him there to be beaten again. Look at I'm a little curious about Tony Schiavone's disdain for paramedics. I don't know if there's something more to that or if he got like outfoxed by a paramedic in college over some girl. There's got to be a backstory to that, or maybe he was just sick of the gimmick. I I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe I could ask Tony Schiavone during a Q and A if I ever sign up for the Conrad Patreon and the seventy one dollar a month tier. This is the advantage of being a New York Foundation. All she has to do is factor in all this information. Which I don't even know how to turn this thing on. That's why she's the chairman of the board. She punches in this. I know who's going to win the match, and I know how long it's going to take, and so does she. Terry Taylor doesn't know how to turn on a computer in 1991 in case you're looking for other reasons of why he never quite got to that next level. Goes into an ad break, and after another one for GNC, we get an advertisement for White Sox season tickets for the first year at New Comiskey Park. And they finished with an 87-75 and 75 record, which was actually the sixth best in baseball that year. But as they did not win their division, they did not make the postseason despite... Huge season from Frank Thomas in his second year. 453 on base percentage led the American League as well as a 1006 OPS. That 91 White Sox team, a lot of it's it's the point where Frank Thomas and Ron Kittle cross, which you don't think of them as ever being in the same place at the same time. Ron Kittle is just a hilarious guy to look at who was the 83 AL rookie of the year who wore these giant glasses that it looked like he bought off golfer Tom Kite off eBay using the buy it now function or something. And Frank Thomas would stick around with the White Sox up through 2005 and was inducted into the Hall of Fame just a couple of years ago. Promotional consideration for a couple of video games. One of them is for NARC, which just made me think of Terry Taylor all over again. And then Total Recall for Nintendo. I have to admit that movie video games usually, to my mind, don't turn out all that well. And maybe it's because I'm thinking of the debacle that was E.T. for the original Atari that ended up in that landfill. There's a documentary out on that. I forget exactly what what that was called, about how they had buried all the E.T. cartridges in some landfill in Alamogordo, New Mexico. I know Triple H, if he was listening to that, you know, probably perked up and talked about burying. Slick 50 and Tegrin Shampoo. But now we have a new challenge. We decided to get back together again, try and go for those world tag titles, and it doesn't matter who 
who has them. The Steiner brothers, we talked about it. It doesn't matter. We just want to try and get those world titles. That's Don't exactly win. right, Stinger. You know, when I broke into this sport less than five years ago, one of the old-timers got to me. You've seen him a million times before and said, Kid, don't worry about what happens kid? from night to night. Sting is rather incredulous that Luger would be called Kid when if you trace back to five years before when Luger is breaking into the business, he's 27 or 28. I mean, most of the guys are probably a lot older than him. But Sting stays on it, like, to the very end. Like, Kid, what are you talking about? They're teaming up, and they are going for the tag titles, and it's kind of a way to freshen Sting a little bit, get him away from singles competition for a little while, and just give him a different look instead of the usual Sting versus Flair, and just kind of break up the monotony. And Sting and Luger actually come out to Sting's music instead of Luger's, as they're still you know kind of the same guitar riff. They're taking on Mark Kyle and Mick Drago, no relation to Ivan Drago. And there's a person at ringside who is holding up a sign that just says, in very plain Helvetica-style lettering, Lex Luger. I'm like, oh, okay, you came all this way to hold up a sign that just says Lex Luger with no other message. It reminded me, like, the wrestling club that I was in in college at Boston University. They, <laughs> We always talked about bringing a sign to a wrestling event where all it would say is wrestling and nothing else, but we never got quite got tickets good enough to you know be in a position to have that on camera. All four of them brawl early on, and Sting and Luger send their opponents to the outside, and then they take it to the floor. Sting scores with a clothesline on Mark Kyle, power slam by Lex Luger, and then a big elbow, the one where Luger would jump way up in the air and then kind of land on his back, almost looking like he was Bret Hart missing the elbow from the second rope, the way he would telegraph it. But this one actually connects, and that's all there is for this match. There's no Scorpion Deathlock, there's no Human Torture Rack, there's no Stinger Splash, there's you know, TV time remaining, I guess, is <laughs> they're wrestling the match in such a way to win it in 90 seconds or less. So I guess that's what happens when you're in a situation. It sure beats the hell out of, we're going to come to show you the conclusion of this enhancement match next week on WCW Pro on WGN. Even though Tony Schiavone might be saying, fans, we're out of time. We aren't, as we have one more item to get to, and that is YouTube Comment Theater. This video has been up for over six months now, and very positive reviews. 47 thumbs up and zero thumbs down. You don't, you don't get that kind of unanimity for 1991 WCW unless you get people talking about how much the Great American Bash sucked, even though I can certainly get through it. Just a few comments I want to run through on here. Daniel Santana says, Shortly after the March 3rd, 1991 Rodney King attack, also, on March 4th, 1991, Simpsons Arcade Game released. Hey, this guy's horning in on my bit of relating stuff that has nothing to do with wrestling just because it happened around the same time period. I mean, I did this earlier in the show. Ugh. <laughs> Vinny of New Jersey says, I thought Rick Rude was the first one to appear on WWF and WWE within a week. I think he means WCW and WWF. Scott Allen was on this show and the March 10th, 1991 episode of WWF Wrestling Challenge. Yeah, the only thing, though, is that Scott Allen 
probably did not have a beard on one of them and a mustache on a live program. I forget I forget the exact order that he went in, but that was the famous thing with Rick Rude after the 1997 Survivor Series. Wayne Moses says, Can't believe how much Dustin Rhodes sounded like his daddy in that promo. Yeah, he's basically just doing an impersonation of his father right down to the promos. The, the in-ring style isn't necessarily the same thing, but with the promos, the comparison is just unavoidable. Daniel Santana again weighs in. I must say Alexandra York was very pretty in the early 90s. Later would become Terry Runnels during the WWF New Generation in the mid to late 90s. And Terry certainly had one of those looks of, like, attainable hot in the early 90s with the the glasses and the hair up. Kind of like that trope you see in the movies where the girl will let her hair down and take off her glasses and, oh, oh, now all of a sudden she's hot. It's kind of a tired thing. Dante Goodman says, Man, how awkward and goofy was that opening segment with Missy and Eligante? To which I would say, very, very awkward and goofy, Dante. And a reply to it from Lewis Morrison says, She looked phenomenal there, though. And yes, she did. Early 91, Missy Hyatt is probably the best-looking version of her. If Missy Hyatt needed to make that Logan's Run decision where she's going to be, you know, one moment in her life forever... I suggest she go with the version that exists here in March of 1991. And that'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. Very quickly, for my podcast roundup segment, the boys on the Our Vantage Point podcast, talking about authority figures on their show this week, the best and worst thereof. I'm a little disappointed that they did not show enough love for Mr. William Regal, on NXT currently because he's by far the best authority figure in the last 20 years and it's not even close on the wrestling podcast about nothing Brian Malonis is out this week but in his place very capably is 2018 New England Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame inductee Brian Fury alongside Mike Crockett talking about the worst ideas they've ever heard in pro wrestling And on the Place to Be podcast earlier this week, Scott and JT were joined by Jennifer Smith of the Geek and Sassy podcast, which you can hear on the Place to Be pop feed, (laughs) Place to Be Nation. I can't do that as well as everybody else does. Anyway, they're talking about the May of 1988 Madison Square Garden show, which features a Randy Savage versus Ted DiBiase main event. As for my show next week, I'm undecided between a number of different things. I originally thought I was going to do a show from 1979 for the first time, but I think I might hold that back for a few weeks, and maybe I'll go with something that I already have on my iPod Touch so that I can watch it on the plane without even thinking about Wi-Fi or any of that business. So thank you so much for listening. I'll have that out on social media. I should have done a Diamond Dallas Page or Diamond Stud show for next week because it'll be episode 75, the Diamond Anniversary of Greetings from Allentown. And do tune in then for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. <laughs>